Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Wolner. This episode deals with homicide and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is episode two of The Mandan Murders. Last time we heard how the murders at RJR in Mandan impacted so many people. And I shared how this changed my life too. I have to say, working on this story now, it continues to impact my life. Because I've met some really amazing people working on this story. People you are about to meet too. Among others, three young women, daughters of three of the victims. Obviously, they didn't have to take part in this series, and Lord knows I hesitated to contact them at all at first. They must have gone through so much already. But they agreed to speak with me, and we'll be hearing from them several times throughout this series. In this episode, they share their memories of that first day, hearing the conflicting news, wondering what was happening, and waiting, and worrying, and then the terrible, terrible confirmation that their parents had been murdered at RJR. And, as you will hear yourself, they do this fearlessly, complete with emotion and raw honesty. I'm so grateful and honored that these individuals allowed me to ask these questions to learn more about their parents, their lives, and how this tragic crime has affected them. Now, let me take you to the morning of April 1st, 2019, before anyone had learned anything yet, when an RJR employee named Justin Bockheim arrived there for his workday. As you'll now hear, Justin Bockheim walked into a very tough situation. As much as I'd like to hope and believe that I could handle this situation as well as Justin did, if I was forced to, I'm not sure I could. On the morning when everything would change, April 1st, 2019, Justin Bockheim drove to his place of employment, RJR Maintenance and Management, in Mandan. It was a chilly dawn with temperatures hovering just below freezing. Justin had been employed at RJR for about nine months at the time. He worked there as a service maintenance technician. His employer, RJR Maintenance and Management, had been around for about 20 years. If you were an owner of an apartment building in the Bismarck-Mandan area, or if you just wanted to rent out a home, RJR Maintenance and Management could take a lot of work off of your plate. Don't want to deal with collecting rent? No problem. RJR could do that for you. Don't want to struggle with a snowblower or lawnmower for your apartment building? No problem. RJR could do that too. RJR could pay your mortgages, re-rent your apartments, maintain buildings and grounds. They even rented out storage space. On any given day, RJR dealt with landlords and tenants, dishwashers and toilets, washing machines and rain gutters. Pretty much anything involved in keeping thousands of rental units up and running. In 2019, the company was operating with 22 employees out of a new building at 1106 32nd Avenue Southeast 
in Mandan. It was located off of Memorial Highway, which was known locally as the Strip. The RJR building looks like a big firehouse, beige exterior with a maroon-colored metal roof. In all, there are eight tall overhead roll-up doors, like a garage door but taller and wider, big enough for a dump truck to get into. Four of these doors face the main employee parking lot, and the other four are on the opposite side, facing the strip. So if you were to open two opposing doors, you could drive right on through that part of the building. It's basically a giant garage with a concrete floor. They refer to this giant garage as the shop. Inside the shop that morning was a lot of equipment and machinery. The shop is where the RJR technicians like Justin repaired or maintained appliances and equipment. There was also about 10 RJR vehicles parked in the shop that morning. Pickups, vans, and small cars parked in rows, most with RJR written on the side. Between the rows of vehicles were power tools, lawnmowers, snowblowers, refrigerators, microwaves, window air conditioning units, washing machines, and dryers, all in various states of maintenance or repair. But there's more to the RJR building than the open shop area. Facing the street, 32nd Avenue Southwest, is a public entrance leading into the main reception area. This is where customers could come to the counter and do business such as pay rent, drop off, or pick up leasing agreements. Behind the reception desk were several small business offices, and behind those a break room accessible from both the offices and the shop. When Justin arrived at around 7.20 a.m. that morning, it was just about sunrise. As he cruised up to RJR, he immediately noticed something out of the ordinary. Where is Bill's pickup, he wondered. Bill was Justin's boss, William Cobb. William, or Bill, was head of maintenance and his wife Lois worked in the office. It was unusual that the Cobb's vehicle wasn't there, the normal morning schedule at RJR went something like this. At 6.30 a.m., Bill and Lois Cobb arrived, usually together, to get the business up and running for the day. They entered the building, turned off the alarm, turned on the lights in the office area and in the shop. They got the coffee percolating in the break room. They unlocked the employee side door that led into the shop from the parking lot. The next person to arrive was usually Robert Faulkner. He'd pull in around 7 a.m. Sometimes he was accompanied by his wife, Jackie Fockler, but more often than not, Jackie drove to work a little later, on her own. Robert and Jackie were co-owners of RJR. Robert managed the shop and business in general, and Jackie managed the office. After Robert's arrival and closer to 7.30, the service techs, like Justin, would show up. Then other employees trickled in until about 8 a.m. when the front doors of RJR were opened to the public and operations kicked into full swing. And so it wasn't normal for Bill Cobb's pickup to be gone from the parking lot. On the other hand, Justin did recognize a different vehicle there that morning. It was a small RJR service van that he knew was driven by the on-call technician. That day, the on-call tech was Adam Fuhrer. Justin Bockheim parked his vehicle, and like on many mornings before, he made his way to the employee entrance leading into the shop. 
Once inside, the first thing he noticed was a coffee cup that seemed to have been knocked over. Then he turned to his left, where he saw Robert Fockler lying on the concrete floor. He wasn't moving, and Justin spotted blood. He quickly moved to Robert, reached out and touched him, but Robert didn't move. And so Justin called 911. 911, what is the address of their emergency? 1106 32nd Avenue Southwest in Mandan at RGR office. Owner's down, bleeding profusely. Okay. And your name? Justin Bachheim. All right, Justin, I'm going to have some questions for you, okay? You know what happened? Okay. No, I walked into work and I found him on the floor. Where is he bleeding from? I don't know. I'm afraid to... Okay, how old is he? You can give me an estimate if you don't 52. know. 52. Okay, and is he awake? No. Is he breathing? It does not look like it. All right, I'm going to give you some instructions here, all right? I'm sending paramedics to help me out the line. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do next. Is he, are you right by him now? Yes. Okay, listen carefully. I want you to lay him flat on his back on the floor. Make sure there's nothing underneath his head. Do that now. Okay. Come on, Robert. There's no response. Can you get him over for me? I'm going to give you CPR instructions. <laughs> I mean, when you have him on his back. Yep, he's on his back. Listen, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do chest compressions. Make sure he's flat on his back on the ground. Place the heel of your hand on the breastbone in the center of the chest, right between the nipples. Put your other hand on top of that. Okay. All right. Pump the chest hard and fast at least twice per second, two inches deep. Let the chest come all the way up between pumps. We're going to do this 600 times or until help takes over. Count out loud so I can count with you. Go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Paramedics Tanner Artroud and Kylan Williams of Metro Area Ambulance received the call at 728 and arrived just three minutes later. As far as they knew, they were responding to a medical cardiac arrest. They parked the ambulance, grabbed their cardiac monitor and other equipment, and rushed towards the employee entrance, where by this time, another employee had arrived and was there waving them in. That's a good pace right there. Stay just like that. Justin, if you can hear me, ambulance and fire are over there. They're gonna be coming in. Hello? Yes, paramedics are on site. Okay, great job, Justin. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details.
Once inside the building, the medics took over CPR and assessed. What stood out to them was the blood. A lot of blood. Not something they were expecting for a cardiac arrest. They found no pulse, and Robert did not seem to be breathing. One of the medics ripped open Robert's shirt and immediately spotted multiple puncture wounds on his chest. But they didn't immediately think stab wounds, maybe some kind of accident. They look up towards the ceiling, searching, wondering, did something fall on this guy? What happened here? Seconds later, the door opened. Mandan police and fire had arrived. The first cop on scene was patrol officer Bruce Tesnes. He jumped in to help the medics with Robert right away. On his heels was another patrol officer named John Henry, who, like the others, thought he was responding to a fairly routine call for service. I remember I was on a different traffic stop and a medical call came through. Um, initial call came through as guy in cardiac arrest, you know, get those types of calls every single day. The paramedics told Tesnus and Henry that this was no heart attack. This man has puncture wounds. Can you guys make sure the scene is safe here? So Patrolman Henry scanned the area around Robert's body. Looked around and I looked down and then I noticed a blood droplet. Um, it was kind of leading towards the door that I just entered. And um, the victim was pretty far away for something, a blood droplet that small. And it's, I don't know, at that point of like my career, you know, learning things and stuff like that, it just really stuck out to me. And even then, just looking at him, there was more to it. It wasn't just a cardiac arrest. So that's at that point is when I started asking people to leave the, the building to try to secure the scene. Officer Henry turned to RJR employee Justin Bockheim, who had found Robert Faulkner, and said something like, you'd better wait outside. Justin returned outdoors to the parking lot where more people had arrived and were now huddled up, concerned, wondering what was going on. One of those employees was co-owner Jackie Faulkner, Robert's wife. She was more than just concerned. She was terrified. She'd arrived to find an ambulance, fire, and squad cars at her business. When she rushed to the door, she briefly saw paramedics working on her husband. Someone ushered her out. Someone else said something about a heart attack. In the moment, it was a frantic blur. With employees out of the building and medics still working on Robert, officers Tesnus and Henry were now on the move, quickly checking the area for anything and anyone. They started in the shop area where they hoofed it through the gauntlets between vehicles, scanning, gazing, always moving. Then Officer Henry arrived at a door which led to, well, he didn't know where it led. Through the first door and see a, a break room, essentially. little little conference table, chairs, fridges, snacks out. Um, it was clear. Then you walk through there, through another threshold. On the other side of this threshold was another area of the building. He first saw an open space, an open office area. It was a type of common space joining several smaller offices together. Officer Henry scanned the room, and that's when he found them. It's hard to think if I was startled or just kind of like, you know, just popped up right away just two people laying on the ground in two different two different entryways to do two different rooms officer henry had discovered lois cobb and bill cobb lois was lying on her back in the doorway of the women's bathroom and there was a lot of blood to his left just inside the entrance to an office slumped over and motionless on the floor was william cobb 
his chest soaked in blood. From a call for service for a potential heart attack for one person, to now this, now three bodies. I quickly backed out to that first kind of first door I went to. Um, as I was doing that, I was asking for more officers. Officer Tessness and a third cop named Step hightailed it over to Officer Henry to see what was going on. Meanwhile, 100 miles to the west in South Hart, North Dakota, Robert and Jackie Faulkner's daughter, Jamie Binstock, was sleeping. Back then, Jamie worked for RJR, but from home. A mother of four, Jamie had a newborn baby at the time, and as she told me when I met her recently, she usually turned off her phone at night. I'm surprised I answered my phone. I got a call from my mom early, early in the morning, because it's mountain time back there compared to central time. And my mom said, it's your dad. I think he's having a heart attack. And she said, the EMT and police are here, and I can see through the door, and I just see the bottom half of your dad, and he's laying on the ground. So, um, when she called me, she had she didn't know what was going on yet. None of us knew what was going on yet. So, I tell my husband, I'm like, we have to go. And we drive with all the kids. We dropped off three out of four of them at my mother-in-law's house in New Salem because I was nursing at the time. While Jamie and her family headed out on a 90-minute dash to Mandan, back at RJR, Officer Henry had told Officers Tessness and Step what they had just found in the office. Two bodies, and who knows what else is all in there. Maybe more bodies, maybe a killer. We don't know if someone's going running around stabbing people. We don't know if they're hiding in a closet. We don't know where they're at or if they're hiding in the abundance of cars that were parked in that shop. Officer Stepp grabbed his radio and made the call for backup. Multiple bodies at RJR in Mandan send detectives. These words hit home all around town, on newsroom police scanners and in squad cars. The word was out. Something was going down at RJR Maintenance and Management at 1106 32nd Avenue Southwest in Mandan. With weapons out and pupils dilated, Henry, Tessness, and Step moved into the lunchroom and on through the threshold into the open office area. Officer Step went in the middle to kind of protect the unknown that was in front of us still. Officer Tessness went around to where the other two victims were, and I, I went to the right, essentially when cleared empty offices. You're just looking for any major area where somebody can hide themselves under desks behind things. After Officer Stepp checked the reception area near the front door and public entrance, he came across a closed door, a locked door. They had to find out what was behind this locked door, so they decided to kick it in. A simple small rug made things difficult for them for a moment. They kept slipping on the rug. But I think that's just kind of the adrenaline and the stress of it all. Like, we're just trying to do something so simple. We've kicked in doors before but a little rug just completely messes that up. They finally got it open, though, and stormed inside. All they found there were computer cables and blinking lights on server racks, shelving and office supplies. No more bodies, 
No killer hiding in the shadows. Officer Tessness touched Lois Cobb's arm quickly. No response. Same with Bill Cobb. No signs of life. But he knew that was for the medics to decide. But before the medics could come back in there, they had to secure the whole building. From there, we'll do secondary searches. I don't think we necessarily started because we still had the whole shop area that we needed to go through. So back they went into the shop area to sweep it again. I remember coming around that corner and kind of in the area. I was kind of in the area where that first victim was at. And then looking forward, all I can see was two was feet laying on the other side of that bench. A body. Another body laying in blood. And then that's when, you know, approach it. And then the fourth victim was there laying. This fourth body was Adam Fuhrer. Adam lay on his stomach only some 20 feet from where Robert Fockler had been found. Nobody had been able to see him previously. He lay obscured behind a workbench. At that point, I was had so much adrenaline and stuff, and everything clicked, like that fourth, finding the fourth victim, everything was, that's when things started to slow down and more officers started arriving on scene. The EMS comes through, checks on everybody and, you know, confirm that they were deceased. And I think before I went outside, I remember Lieutenant Haug at the time, Captain Haug now, he, I remember him coming in and just rubbing his head and just sighed and it's terrible. Adam Fuhrer, Lois Cobb, Bill Cobb, and Robert Faulkner, they were all gone. Outside in the parking lot was an anxious and confused growing group of RJR employees. Questions all around and in every direction. Who's inside? Did Robert have a heart attack? Has anyone seen Bill and Lois? Their truck's not here. Are they in there? And where's Adam? Still miles away and rushing towards Mandan on Interstate 94, Robert Fockler's daughter, Jamie, and her family were struggling to understand what was going on. Well, actually, on the drive here is when we started seeing posts on Facebook and on the news, and we still at that point had no idea what happened. When, when this was all happening, we had quite a few people texting us and messaging us saying, what's going on? Are you guys okay? We didn't know what was going on, but something deep down in me thought that he, my dad was gone. Working on this story has got me thinking a lot lately, thinking about something we don't always like to think about. Let's face it, we wake up each day with a new slate, and it's rarely a blank slate, it's often filled in for us already. Wake up, open eyes, consult the slate. What is it I'm doing today? Ah yes, here it is for me, slated up for me already. Now and then, the morning looks exciting, extra special, maybe a birthday. Other mornings are what we might call an ordinary slate, previously rehearsed and choreographed. Go to work, go to school, maybe a dentist appointment, mow the lawn, mop the floor. And sometimes we just jump right to it, right? No time like the present to get things done, we might say. No time like the present. 
That's a witty expression, but it's also quite profound. Because if you think about it, there is no other time than the present. Let's face it, our man-made slate each morning and all those personal calendars, post-it notes, and notifications, while all that helps to navigate and organize our busy lives, it's also just part of an illusion, a pipe dream we've concocted and chosen to believe in. Almost a delusional contention that we have supreme control over our lives somehow. We tell ourselves, if I know what I'm doing today and tomorrow, I can see what's coming. I can predict the future. Of course, we're not dumb. We know we can't predict the future. But we try not to think about that too much, and that's probably for good reason. I mean, sure, I suppose we could write it down on our slate, front and center, all in caps, Something completely out of your control might sideswipe your whole life today, forever. But that is a sobering truth, one of those facts of life we'd rather not be reminded of, at least not every morning. The unpredictability of life is spooky enough as it is, so we trudge forward, we head out there each day in good faith. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, thinking how utterly and innocently in the dark everyone was on that morning in 2019, how everything was about to change and change so quickly. And if you will please forgive me, for the moment anyway, I'm not just talking about Lois Cobb, Bill Cobb, Adam Fuhrer, and Robert Faulkner. For the moment, again, if you will forgive me, I'm also talking about everyone else affected by the RJR tragedy. The repercussions of the Mandan murders hit far and wide. Some people who were hit by shrapnel from that event are still wounded to this day. Other people, like myself, we escaped unharmed, but nevertheless had our life nudged in a new direction. Now some people, like law enforcement and first responders, are sort of trained to expect the unexpected. To a certain extent, it's part of their job. Still, the RJR homicides shook their world too. And there were others on that morning, members of the community, civilians, who were just routinely preparing for their day, fully unaware of what was coming. Little did they know that they were about to make some important observations and take important action. What may have been a simple act for them, like picking up the phone and calling in a tip, but for law enforcement and ultimately for the friends and family of the RJR victims, were huge, vital steps. People like Nathan Helm of Bismarck, who was preparing for a day at work as a salesperson at Indigo Signworks in Mandan. Indigo Signworks was a business located just off of Memorial Highway within eyesight of RJR. Nathan Helm got up that morning. He consulted his slate. It said, go to work at Indigo Signs. And so he did. And then there was Ben Zackmeyer, getting ready to head to his place of employment, too. Ben was co-owner of Big O Tires. Big O Tires sat a half mile west of Indigo Signs, also along the Strip, just next to McDonald's. And over there at McDonald's, an employee named Angela Davis would arrive for her 6 a.m. shift, where she would be tasked with many job duties, including running food out to the waiting drive through customers. I don't know everything that was on Angela Davis' agenda that day, but there's one thing I am certain of. When Angela opened her eyes that early morning, when she sat up in bed and consulted her own slate for the day, it did not say anything like, go to work at McDonald's on the Strip in Mandan, 
where you will become one of the most important and pivotal first witnesses in a horrific quadruple homicide. For paramedics and patrolmen, a call to respond to a possible cardiac arrest had erupted into a whirlwind experience. Not a heart attack, but homicide. Not one person down, but four. And it all happened so quickly. But for the police, there was no time for reflection. Now, no time to stop and catch their breath or debrief. They had work to do. While waiting for detectives and others to arrive, they began corralling the group of employees in the parking lot. The RJR staff would all need to be identified, their names and phone numbers recorded. At some point, they would be interviewed by investigators. I was actually heading into the office that morning, and I remember hearing the initial call come out as a medical. This is Pat Haug of the Mandan Police Department. In 2019, he was a lieutenant and has since been promoted to captain. Overhearing a call for a medical situation wouldn't grab his attention, but then he heard patrolmen asking for detectives. Being that I was in charge of investigations at that time, I just diverted and started heading down there. I realized there was something significant going on um, based upon Officer Tessis's voice over the radio. Another cop to arrive that morning was a Morton County Sheriff's deputy named Andrew Trius. He'd been sitting in his cruiser near Main Street and 6th Avenue Southwest when his police scanner crackled and he heard something going on over at RJR. So he threw his cruiser in the drive and jetted down the strip and then to the scene where he offered assistance. He helps Mandan PD identifying the employees in the parking lot. Trias speaks to a few of them, a guy named Jeremy, a guy named Deanna, and then he speaks with Don Eliason. Eliason tells Trias that Bill Cobb's pickup is missing. It's a white Dodge pickup with RJR logos on the side. Then Deputy Trias helps to secure the perimeter of RJR. They need to keep the general public, the curious onlookers, and the media back from the immediate scene. So Trias jumps back in his Morton County cruiser and zips just 100 yards up the street near Midway Lane's bowling alley, where he parks in the middle of the street and blocks it off. Back inside RJR, Officer Bruce Tesnus gives Patrick Haug a walkthrough of the crime scene. Yeah, so when I get on scene, I still don't know what's going on. Um, So I went in the side door at RJR. When you walked in, immediately there was Robert Faulkner was on the floor right off to my left, was kind of briefed on some of his injuries. And then Adam Fuhrer, um, I could not see him completely, um, but they pointed out um, where he was laying and I could just see his feet on the ground. And we did a walkthrough of the building and took me to the Cobbs. And I knew at that point um, how big of a deal this had just become. Um, Knowing the limitations of my department, manpower-wise and stuff like that, uh, I'd already formulated that I'm going to need some help on this. We're going to need help processing this scene. And I'd already made the determination that we were going to call the Bureau of Criminal Investigations at a minimum for the crime scene because the crime scene was so big. But BCI or no BCI? No real investigation of the crime scene will happen until they have a search warrant. I was not yet at work that day when I got the call from an investigator. 
This is Gabrielle Goder. She is currently a senior state's attorney in Bismarck, but in 2019, she was assistant state's attorney in Martin County. On that morning, she was at home in Mandan when the call came in. She was basically on call 24-7. She wasn't surprised that the phone rang, although the subject of the call, that was different, much different. Basically, it was a call from Sergeant Wilmoth with Mandan Police Department who told me that we had um, multiple deceased individuals and we would be needing a search warrant. Elsewhere in North Dakota, as they sped down the interstate towards Mandan, all Jamie Binstock and her family knew was that Jamie's dad had possibly had a heart attack at RJR. But if it was just a heart attack, why were they seeing so much buzz on social media about RJR? When they arrived at Mandan, they pulled off the interstate, then navigated down Memorial Highway, known locally as the Strip. The Strip in Mandan is hugged by lots of local businesses. They passed McDonald's on the right, Big O Tires, Bill Barth Ford. Finally, they took a right off of the Strip at Indigo Signs and Midway Lanes Bowling Alley. The first thing they saw was Morton County Deputy Trius parked in the middle of the street, blocking traffic. So... We get into Mandan, and the road is off. Obviously, the entire area in front of RJR is blocked off. So we had to tell police that we were families so we could be let through. And beyond the roadblock, just 100 yards or so, was the scene at RJR. Jamie spotted her mother, Jackie Faulkner, in the parking lot. They parked, and Jamie rushed to her mother. And my mom met me on the road and told me that he was gone. At that point, we still didn't know how he had passed away. So whatever staff was there, we sat outside with. Um, there There was quite a few employees that were sitting out with us trying to figure out still what was going on. And... It just, that's the hard part is that it felt like everyone else knew what was going on, but we didn't know. So while we were sitting there, we were trying to figure out who was missing out of everyone because we didn't know who was in the building Um, and Bill's truck wasn't there. So we didn't know if Bill and Lois were in there. Just 150 yards away to the north, at a business named Indigo Signs, employees Bruce Dintelman, Nathan Helm, and others had heard the sirens and seen the swarm of police cars down the street. They gathered outside of Indigo Signs and looked on, speculating what in the world was happening down at RJR. One of them said something like, Hey, did you guys see that RJR pickup in our parking lot this morning? And sure enough, there it was. A white Dodge pickup with RJR printed on the sides, just sitting there at Indigo Signs, a stone's throw from where it actually belonged. They took a walk due west towards Midway Lane's bowling alley, where they could see Morton County Deputy Trius, who was blocking off the street. Hey, they told Trius, we got an RJR vehicle over here in our lot. Trius grabbed his radio and called it in the Mandan PD. Here is Captain Pat Haug again, who was a lieutenant at the time. Initially, when he told me about it, it's not that I discarded it, but I kind of put it aside in my mind. 
And then as things are progressing, I'm realizing that's a bigger deal than I kind of initially thought. And so I made sure I had an officer over there. That officer was Garrett Stepp, who, along with Tessness and Henry, had just discovered four bodies at RJR. Stepp zipped up the indigo signs where he found the white Dodge and basically stood guard until others could arrive. One of my officers or one of my detectives um, said they thought they saw blood on the outside of it. This pickup was, of course, the one missing from RJR, the vehicle that the Cobbs drove. While Robert Faulkner's family was right there in North Dakota, the families of Bill Cobb and Lois Cobb were a thousand miles away near Springfield, Illinois. Bill and Lois' marriage was the second marriage for both of them. They both had two kids from previous marriages. Bill had a son and a daughter, aged 29 and 24 at the time, and Lois had a daughter and a son, aged 25 and 23. But despite their distance from North Dakota, with the speed of the internet and social media, Lois' kids and Bill's kids got the news that something was happening just about as fast as anyone else. I recently spoke with stepsisters Brianne and Amy. Brianne is Lois' daughter, and Amy is Bill's daughter. Here is Brianne. Uh, my brother's ex-girlfriend started calling me back to back, and I was super tired because I had two small little children at the time, and I was like, hey, girl, I can't answer right now. I'm just too exhausted. And she said, no, this is an emergency. So I answered and she told me to get on the news, get on Google, figure out what's going on at RJR. And her words were, four bodies were found inside. Instantly panic set over me. I, I started calling my mom first, calling her back to back, calling my stepdad back to back. When neither one of them were answering, I called my sister. And this is Amy Cobb. I worked at a doctor's office at this time. It was a Monday morning, and I had my phone facing up, and I saw that my sister was calling. And I had like a, I don't know, like a weird feeling, like a gut feeling or something. Not that I knew anything was wrong at this point, but I answered. She was trying to stay calm, but like you could just hear like panic in her voice. And she's like, hey, have you talked to our parents? And I'm like, no. And she was like, well, I just got a phone call. She was like, I'm kind of freaking out because I can't get a hold of them. And so I remember walking into a different part of my job, like kind of more private area. And I was like, what's going on? I told her what was going on. And so we decided, we we set a game plan on who we were going to call to figure out what was going on. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to keep, I'm going to try to call my dad. And she's like, okay, I'm going to try to call my mom. Because we knew our parents were one of the first ones that were inside that building every single morning. And I knew my mom was going to be at work that day because she was coming in to surprise everyone. She had had a surgery and wasn't supposed to be at work for another week. Well, she went in because she was bored and she felt better and she wanted to surprise everyone that she was back at work. And so at this point, um, I think my panic kind of set in um, because I called my dad um, like a crazy amount of times, probably over a hundred times. And I was like, okay, well, this is not like my dad. Like at this point he would have answered and been like, hello, crazy. Why are you calling me so many times? Like what's going on? But he wasn't answering. And so I called my sister back. Have you heard from anyone? And she's like, no, I cannot get a hold of my mom. 
we started calling a whole bunch of people. I called the police department in in North Dakota, and they couldn't give me any information, which is understandable. They were doing their investigation. We had no clue, and so we had visited there. So we had known a couple people from RJR, but we didn't know them to that extent, you know. Um, so I was like reaching at anybody that I may have known to be able to get a hold of or anything. So I remember um, them speaking of Jackie, Robert, Deanna. Those were like the three that like popped in my head vividly to call. And um, Chris, who also worked there and like that's who would watch their dogs sometimes, like if they would go places or stuff like that. So I then at this point called my brother Tyler and I was like, hey, I can't get a hold of dad. Bree called me. I'm not really sure what's going on. And at this point, I mean, we didn't know, obviously, we didn't know anything. We just couldn't get a hold of them. Um, and so we knew that there was a situation, but we didn't even know that anyone had died, any, nothing. I called my brother and he's like, well, I'll try to get a hold of Chris. And I was like, okay. He's like, I'm going to try to get a hold of maybe like Deanna or something. Back in Mandan, North Dakota, Jamie Binstock and the others knew that they had to tell Bill and Lois' kids what was going on. Even if they didn't know exactly, they had a pretty good idea by that point. Here is Robert's daughter, Jamie, again. I knew that my mom had a few of Bill and Lois' kids' phone numbers. I didn't know who she all had. Um, so I ended up calling Amy Cobb, Bill's daughter. At this point, I get a message on Facebook saying, this is Jamie, please call me at this, or can I please call you, give me your number. And I texted her my, or messaged her my number and she called me immediately. And I had to be the one to tell her that we're pretty sure that they were gone. Um, I, I will never forget having to tell someone that. It's pretty much the phone call that obviously no one wants to get, but she said, she's like, I'm really sorry to be the person to call you. Um, we can't find your parents, and I think that they're dead. And Lois' daughter, Brianne. When I heard that, I just, I dropped, and I was in my kitchen, I dropped to my knees, and I just was hysterical. I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe. And all of a sudden, I just felt my mom's embrace. And I knew at that moment that my mom was gone. At some point, the employees had to leave the scene. Some went home, others went home with friends. Robert's daughter, Jamie, again. And we put the TV on and we sat there just watching and waiting to get any notification. And then we got a call that they wanted us to go down to the police station. They sent a message saying if we could have a phone conference with the families of Bill and Lois and Robert and Adam. All of us are here in Illinois and they're all there in North Dakota. And while we were in one of the rooms, that's when we sat there and they confirmed everyone that had passed away. 
And then I remember when they said my dad's name and my stepmom's name, but I didn't hear anything else after that. Robert Faulkner, age 52. Adam Fuhr, age 42. Lois Cobb, age 45. And William Cobb, age 50. That was it. That's the most I can remember from that day. So I felt like I was just in such a state of like shock and disbelief that this was like even happening, you know? I'd really like to thank Jamie, Brianne, and Amy for speaking with me. We will hear more from them moving forward in future episodes. I'd like to leave you with the story that Amy told me about that first night. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Some of my coworkers came over and like, you know, people just, my friends, they just tried to like, it was a moment of like, we don't even know what to do. We just want to be here for you kind of thing. And um, I remember I was like, I just need a moment. I'm just going to go to the gas station by myself. And I remember I got to the gas station and I literally got there and I like physically couldn't get myself out of the car. Like it was like a, I felt like I was just like bolted down in my car. I remember I called my best friend and she drove down the block. She's like, I think, how about I just go in the gas station for you and then I'll just drive you home and we'll get your car later. that feeling it was like the weirdest thing it happened to me at least four more times where i like physically just couldn't get out of my car because i was just so sad and so overwhelmed in disbelief like i didn't know how to even move Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.